You need to meditate on that. Let that sink in. He's good. And he says in Jeremiah, and I know the plans I have for you. God has plans for you. And they're for good. And not for evil. And for an expected, confident, good end. Oh, praise God. God is so good. So good, so good, so good, so good. Well, I can testify that God is good. We saw, I can't go into the details with you, but we saw a prayer answer to the last 24 hours for years in a situation in someone's life. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. And I was tempted to come up here and say, you know, we, they are making progress. Sometimes, sometimes you can't, there's progress being made you can't see. But that's true in the spirit realm. See, I walk, if I'd walk in here today and didn't see anything, I wouldn't fire everybody say, I don't see anything. Because I have faith in our contractor and I have faith in Gary, who's the project manager. I have faith that things are being done whether I can see them or not. And the same is true with God. In fact, he's the great project manager. And uh, don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Because God hears and answers your prayers. I was just meditating this afternoon at, on, um, in John chapter 11. This is the, issue, the subject tonight, but where Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus. And, uh, and he, he, he's, his confession to his disciples was, Lazarus is just asleep. And they said, oh, that's great, he's only asleep. And it says, no, no, he's really dead. But Jesus was making a confession of faith that he was asleep. And then he stands at the tomb of Lazarus. This is so powerful. And he's, he's about, the man's been dead four days, embalmed. I mean, he's in the grave. He is wrapped up. And according to his sister, he stinketh. <laughs> and he stands at the tomb at the door and says out loud, Father, I thank you that you always hear me when I pray. Always hear me when I pray. Always. Well, see, but that's Jesus. But I thought you were in the body of Christ. I thought you were saved. Because if you're saved, you're in Christ. So whatever he can do, you can do. And the Father listens to you just as he listens to Jesus. John chapter 17, several, two places it says, He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Why? Because you're in Christ. He can't love Jesus and not love you. He can't listen to Jesus and not listen to you. And the New Testament is filled with promises that God hears and answers prayer. But see, Jesus had confidence in that. I know, I know that you always hear me when I pray. Therefore, I am praying this one out loud so that they know you did this and not me. We're to have that kind of confidence when we pray. Whether you see the results or not, God's at work. Amen? Ephesians chapter 1. That was just a little side trip. I had to get out. We're going through the first chapter. It's just so full of riches, and we're going to get into another aspect tonight. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places because we're in Christ. Just as He chose us to be in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by or through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Some of them say, which, well, all right. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound, that actually means superabound, toward, towards us in all wisdom and prudence, understanding having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure, his good pleasure, by which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times 
he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him you also have obtained an inheritance. How we talked about that. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this was what we were this is what the inheritance was, was predestined. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's the apostles. In him you also trusted. That's us. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel or the good news of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, because of all this, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention you of you in my prayers. Now the rest of this chapter is what Paul was praying for the church of Ephesus, and therefore we have a right to claim this because it's God's will for us. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Number two, that the eyes, in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, which is what verse 17 said, that you might come to know what is three things? The hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him with him, seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is so rich in there. And we're taking it apart, one element at a time, and we're not going to go back over things we've covered, except to mention that we've been talking about this prayer where Paul prays in verse 17 that we might be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And this is what he wants us to know about him. That the eyes of our understanding, having been enlightened, you might know what is the hope of his calling. We talked about that over the last several weeks. We talked before that about it, the riches of the inheritance. We have an inheritance in the saints. And verse 19 is what we're going to look at now, begin to look at in the rest of this. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power. So he wants us to have an understanding of the hope or the confidence of his calling, of the inheritance that we have. Calling is now, the inheritance is our future. We have a future. And we talked last week about we have to have the godly perspective, the biblical perspective, is that this life on this earth that we're living out right now, day by day with all the issues of life, all the good things that happen, all the things that aren't so good that happen, the struggles, the temptations, all the things, the wonderful blessing, whatever it is, all those things are temporary. That's not really what our life is in Christ. And we began to look at this world that we live in is not our home, it's our assignment. And we saw that in if Hebrews, in chapter 11, it refers to Abraham and Isaac. And I talked about this a little bit on Sunday. Abraham and Isaac and those men that lived by faith, the patriarchs, lived in tents, even though they were living in a land that God had promised to them. So they were in the land, they received the land God had promised to them, but we saw that by living in tents, because a tent is a temporary dwelling, has no foundation, that that was communicating to their senses that this was only a temporary place. And it goes on to say in Hebrews, because they were looking for a city, not a tent, a city that has, and has and dwellings that have a foundation. Foundation implies a permanent location. We moved into the house we're in right now 21 years ago, expecting to be there one year. We're going to rent it one year and find something else. At the end of that one year, our landlord was going to sell the house. We just didn't want to move, so we made an offer below the offer that he already gotten, and he took our offer. That was God's favor. Didn't have the money to buy it at the time, but by the time of the closing came, we had the money. We had everything we needed and more. Still planning only being the short term. That was 21, 20, 20 years ago we bought the house. So it has a foundation on it. It's been permanent. It's been our residence. But I know someday we're leaving that. 
And so my perspective on my life cannot be, I've got to desperately hold on to this tent. Then we looked in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul uses that same analogy to talk about our physical body, that this is just a tent. This is a temporary dwelling. If you notice, it has patches in some place, and it has some holes in the back somewhere. It leaks in some places, you know. And so when it rains, sometimes the water gets it. You know, it's not as strong as it maybe was originally. But don't worry about it. This is just your temporary dwelling. Because when you fold this, when this one gets folded up, you step into your permanent one. Your permanent one. And that's our hope. And so Paul says at the end of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians, therefore we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. We look at the things that are not, we look, well, we look at the things, you do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary. They have no permanence to them, but the things that are not seen that's the spirit realm. That's your spirit body. That's your spiritual dwelling. Those things are eternal. And so that has to be our perspective. That has to be our hope. And you give confidence in that. That changes your perspective on life. Now the devil, now there ultimately can be no fear. I've shared with this before. I've known some people that have died in this body and gone to heaven. I've known at least two of them that I've known personally. In both of those cases and many others that I've read, they have no fear once they've come back. If you read that book that was popular a few years ago, Heaven is for Real, little Colson, who died and went to heaven and came back. He had no fear. He's like six years old, eight years old, no fear. Because once you've seen that, nothing here can threaten that. So we, they happen to have seen it with their inner eye. We have to see it by faith. And we have to learn to walk with our eyes on that by faith. And as you read through Hebrews 11, that's ultimately the bottom line purpose of learning to walk by faith. So we've looked at that. We looked at that last time. Now we're going to go on to what verse 19 talks about. It's the third thing that Paul is asking God to open our eyes to understand. Verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness? Oh, I love it. Not just what is great. The exceeding, God is a God of superlatives. God is a God of superlatives. Chapter 3, he says, and my God who will do, can do exceedingly abundantly beyond. Wow. Exceedingly beyond's good exceedingly beyond abundantly beyond but exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can think or ask I used to have an English teacher when I was in school and he was I mean he was brutal with compositions they called him chopper (laughs) not to his face because he would take whatever you wrote and just chop it up I mean back then we didn't have you know, word processors and laptops and things like that. You had to actually write the compositions out in longhand, which was never my strength. And, and, and it with blue ink. And it would come back with more red ink on it than blue ink. He would say, why do you have this the there? I said, what do you mean why this is the there? But I, this is a little side. I, it really became a blessing in my life and, and, and because even some of the things I use in teaching now come from the disciplines that he trained me about words. Train me the importance of words. I don't know why I got off on that. Oh, Chop, what was he talking about? What was I talking about? I took this reverie over somewhere. I hope that's not a sign of age. Hmm? Oh, yes. One of the things he would get upset at is if you use too many superlatives. Because in his mind, nothing was exceedingly abundant. But he didn't know God. I don't care how many exceedingly abundance you string together, it doesn't begin to describe God's greatness, God's goodness, what God can do. And actually what it means in the Greek is to superabound. It's like one time we were going out to a conference, I think it was in Tulsa, and I'd rented a car ahead of time. This was years ago. And we arrived late at night. And, uh, and I get to the car rental place, and they said, I'm sorry. I said, well, we reserved this little you know, mini car and he said, I'm sorry, we're all, we only have one car. It's a Ford turbo, turbocharged Cobra or something like that. I'm thinking, I, 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 never, I knew what turbocharging was. I'd never driven one. And we're getting out on Route 44 in Tulsa. And it's, you know, it's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm pulling out in traffic. And I push down on it. And my goodness, it was like, it was like Star Wars, the beginning of Star Wars, you know. Shoot <laughs> like that. And it's like my head went back. I'm like, what was that? God's word is supercharged. That car did exceedingly abundant. Of course, you'd watch the gas meter go down while you're doing that, you know. 
So that's what God is like, super abundantly. And so what he's provided for us is the exceeding greatness of his power. The word power there is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. And that word means the inherent ability or power of someone or something. Inherent means part of their nature. So what this means is God's inherent or natural power, his innate power, his innate power. Now let's talk for a moment about what God's power has done. It's created everything out of nothing. I mean, only God has the ability to take nothing and with his words create things. My wife and I were talking about this this morning in our devotion. What makes God's word different from every other word is that God's word contains within it the power to do what it says. So when God says, let there be, the power to make that is in the words, let there be. Let's, let's go, we'll probably get back here. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 11. It's important to understand this because we're talking about the power that God has given to the church. But it's his power. So let's talk about what his power is. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We talked about that before. By it the elders have gained a good testimony. He's going to go through elders, or the, the, the forefathers that went before us. Look at verse 3. By faith we understand. This is where science struggles. By faith. We understand. Faith is the substance that things hope for. The evidence of things that your microscope can't pick up. The evidence of things that the Hubble telescope can't see. Science is based on what our physical senses can detect. It uses equipment to help that, but ultimately that's analyzed through the five, one or more of the five senses. So scientists are trying to determine how this universe was created by seeing it. And God says, who by the way is the creator, God says the only way you can understand creation is by faith. Because behind creation is someone you can't see. You following me? All right. By faith we understand that the worlds, that literally is the eons, that's the ages, that's all of the universe. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed, that word means created, set in order, and equipped, were framed by the word of God. By faith we understand this, that all of the universe was created by God's word. One moment, nothing. The next moment, boom, the Big Bang. All because God opened his mouth and spoke. Revelation says his voice is a Big Bang. Well, it says it's like the sound of many rushing waters. It's powerful. I guess so. And God didn't have to scream, jump up and down, sweat, yell loudly. He just said, let there be. God is the source of power. And his words, let there be light, created light out of nothing. Now let's go over to Hebrews 1.
Verse 1. God owed various times and various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers through prophets. But in these days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom, he, through whom he also made the worlds. The world was formed by the what of God? In the beginning was the? And the word was God, with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things, all what things? All things that Hebrews 11.3 said he created. Hold, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged sins, he sat down. Look at that. Upholding. So all of the universe, all of existence, all the material realm was created by the word of God speaking it. Not only was it created by the word of God, it is sustained, look at how it's worded, by the word of his power. Not by the power of his words. It's sustained. So it was created by that word, and that word spoken, whether it's thousands of years ago or millions of years ago, is irrelevant. It's still sustained by the power, by the words that he spoke. Words of power. We're just getting a little inkling of what his power is like. Go with me to Romans chapter 4. Okay to get around in our Bible a little bit. It's Bible study. He's talking about faith here because the first three chapters tell us why we need faith. He's talking about being saved. And chapter 1 introduces the subject of the gospel, which we'll get to on, maybe not this Sunday, but we'll get to it soon in our study on Sunday about the gospel. Because it's the power of God. It's the what of God? It's the power of God. That's the same Greek word. It's the power of God under salvation. And then he talks about how people avoid it by trying to live and deny the truth and live in unrighteousness. And chapter 3, of course, the basis of chapter 3 is that we all, none of us could keep the law. The Jews couldn't keep it, and the Gentiles couldn't keep it. No man is saved by his own works, because we've all sinned. At least I know I have. <laughs> Richard and I have. All right, two of you have. The rest of you are liars. Okay. <laughs> we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified thereby. Faith. So the fact that we've all sinned qualifies us for grace. It's not bad news. It's good news. We just have to realize it. And that grace is received by faith. That chapter 4 goes in and talks and begins to talk about what that faith is so we can understand what the basis of our salvation is. And to do that, he uses Abraham as an example. Therefore, verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it may be according to grace. So God wants to save us by His grace, but that grace is received by faith. So that the promise, isn't this neat? God did it this way, so that the promise might be certain to all the seed. God wants everybody saved. He doesn't want someone, He doesn't want it depending on you. He wants it depending on Him. So that it might be certain, available to all of us. To the wisest, the smartest, the strongest, and to the weakest, and the not so smartest. <laughs> to the simplest, and to the wisest. To the weakest, he wants it available to all, so he has it available by grace received through faith. And we've looked at before, we may look at it again in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, that's so in the next age, God's going to show off his grace by presenting you and me as evidence of it. See what a messed up they were? Look what a job they did with their lives. And look what my grace did for them. So we will not be testimonies of how faithful we are. We will not be testifying about how good we are. We're testifying about how gracious God has been. How good He is. What His love can do, not what His power can do. All right. 
not to only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, this is going to talk about Abraham's faith. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, this, even God. So Abraham was promised by God in Genesis chapter 12, then chapter 15, and then chapter 17. In chapter 17, God says, as for me, as far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations. Now most of you understand that at that point in time, Abraham was about 75 years old. He was now getting too old to have children. His wife was 65, and she was barren. She couldn't have any children. And so God comes to Abraham and says, I have made you, starts earlier than chapter 17. He says, as for me, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In chapter 17, when he enters into the covenant with, God, with Abraham, he says, as, of, as for me, I have made you. The tense changes to past tense. As far as I'm concerned, God says, I've made you. This is how God thinks big. Abraham had no child and could have no child. God says, I've made you not a father, not a father of a nation, but a father of many nations. And look in this room tonight. We have here represented some of the nations that he is the father of because he's the father of our faith. God says, as far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations. So when it says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence or in the eyes of him whom Abraham believed, even God. Now this is what it's saying about God that he believed in. The God that made, see, I could make this promise and say, as for me, I've made you a father of many nations. Now, that's going to mean nothing. Because I can't make anybody anything. But the God who made the promise to him, this is what Abraham knew about him. Look what it says. In the presence of him whom we believe, even God who gives life to the dead. And calls those things which do not exist as though they did exist. The difference is when God calls those things that don't exist as if they did exist, they now do exist. So what what Abraham believed about God, and therefore we are to believe about God, is his creative power. The power... First of all, we're going to look at this because it's the resurrection power that we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 1. That we, God might open our eyes, that we might see the extreme greatness, the power that he displayed towards Christ Jesus. What? When he raised him from the dead. So the first thing Abraham knew about God is this is a God who can raise the dead. That become important later on because in Genesis 22... God now tells this son who's been born to him, who has grown up, to go up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering, to basically kill him. And it says in Hebrews 11, when it talks about this, that he did that in faith. Why? He had confidence that God could raise the dead. And if he needed to, God would raise him back up from the dead. Why did he have that, prom- Why did he have that confidence? Because he'd seen God do the impossible. So let's go on finishing this because it's a good lesson in faith. It seems no matter what I do now, it comes out in faith. Verse 18. Who contrary to hope, in hope, believed so that he might become. Notice there's a key there. You have to believe in order that you become. You don't become and then believe. Faith works by you believe the promise of God and then it becomes true. You've got to start with the promise of God. See, Abraham had God's promise. He had God's word. Once you have God's word, God backs that word. Numbers 29, 13 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Nor the son of man that he should repent. Change his mind. Has he not said it, and shall he not bring it to pass? Isaiah 55 says, His word is like the rain and snow that comes down. He sends it forth and it will not return void, but it will accomplish what it was sent to do. God's word is absolutely powerful. 
But we must believe it in order for it to become. That's our part. In hope against hope, he believes that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken by God, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he considered not his own body. Now, some translations said he considered his body. But basically, it didn't move him. Why? Since he was 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. So his issue is this. When God makes that promise to him the last time, he's 100 years old. Well, he's 99. And Sarah's 89 and still barren. Now this is significant for what we're talking about. Because what God has said to him is I'm going to take that dead womb and I'm going to take your dead reproductive organs and from your dead reproductive organs and her dead womb, I'm going to produce life. And the only thing you've got to do is believe my promise and then I can produce life where there was no ability to produce life. And we're going to see when we get to chapter 2, that's what God did with you. And you, when you were dead in your sins and transgressions, He made alive together with Christ Jesus. The life of God that's in you now is not a result of anything you did, just like the life that was in Sarah's womb with Isaac was not a result of anything they did, except act on God's promise. Oh, they tried to help God earlier when they didn't see results right away. So they came up with a scheme to accomplish the same result, but their way. So you know the story. Sarah comes to, to Abraham and says, We're not, nothing's happening here. I know what God said, but it's been years. So I got an idea. I've got this servant girl, Hagar, and why don't you sleep with her and see if maybe God will produce a child? And she, they did. And a child was born, and they presented Ishmael to God and saying, you know, we've helped you fulfill your promise. But isn't that what we're doing? When God says, in Christ I've made you the righteousness of God, and then we go out trying to earn that somehow, trying to add to what God said he'd do, when God's word is full of promises of the power of the Holy Spirit in you to sanctify you, and we're out trying to sanctify ourselves, oh, we need to cooperate with him. But we want to rely on something because we don't see things happening. So something in our flesh wants to, oh, we're believing God, but we're going to help him a little bit. But God wanted known at the end when that child was born, who got the credit? God wanted to know in the end. He wanted them to know that they could trust him. And just at his word, not at his word plus their thoughts and ideas, not at his word plus their efforts. And you know, we do this when we pray. It may be for a loved one. It may be for some situation. And then we try to figure out how we can get involved and make it happen. And that's the same thing they went through. You take the promise of God, you stand on that essential promise of God, and you pray that promise of God back to Him, and God is obligated to do that. Then why do we go pick it up again and get involved and try to help God to make it happen? Because God had to stop and wait till they got finally to the place of believing. But here's what, here's what we're talking about. This is what finally got through to Abraham who in hope against hope believes that he might become a father of many nations according to that which is spoken so should he pretend to speak. And not becoming weak in faith, he contemplated or contemplated not his own body, already dead, couldn't produce a child, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. But he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. You ought to read Genesis' account. He wavered all over the place. He laughed at God. Sarah laughed at God. But I love this. Because in the end, he didn't waver. And that tells me that no matter how you go, the journey you go through to get there, God reports the results as where you ended up at the end, not what you went through to get there. Isn't that good? God's testimony about Abraham is he didn't waver in faith and unbelief. Because in the end, he didn't. but grew strong in faith 
giving glory to God. Look at verse 21. Being fully persuaded, fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Why was he able to perform it? Because he is able to raise the dead. He's able to take something dead, which means it has no life in it, no potential for life. It's beyond anything man can do. Until we get to the place of death, there's always some hope that they'll find a pill, a drug, an exercise, a technique, something that can bring them around. But once they're dead, it's too late now for man's efforts to do anything. Being fully persuaded that what God's promised he was able to do. Why? Because what he knew about God is this God who made the promise can take something dead and make it alive just by his words. But beyond that, he can take something that's never existed and call it into existence by his word. I was meditating on that a number of years ago, going through this, and all of a sudden it hit me. When God promised them, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care how dead her womb is, I don't care how old and unproductive, reproductive your body is, as far as I'm concerned, I made you a father of many nations. The age of their body, the condition of their organs was completely irrelevant because God was not going to need to use any of their natural forces when he can raise the dead with his words. When you can create something out of nothing, nothing can stop you. So what, what does it matter? What, how, what relevance is it what the x-rays show in your body? What's the relevance of the word that the doctors have assigned to that disease? What's that got to do with it when the God who's made the promise can raise the dead? Ask Jairus. You know the story. The ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, comes to Jesus. Says, my little daughter's 12 years old, dying at home. Jesus said, I'll come. And on his way, he's delayed by the woman with the issue of blood. And I, we don't know how long it took. And she's healed, and he interviews her, and there's a commotion going on. And as Jesus is turning to head now toward Jairus' house, a runner comes from his house and says, oh, don't trouble the master anymore. That's religion. You can't trouble God. Oh, you know, we don't, you know God, we don't want to trouble you, bother you. This is his idea. <laughs> That's religion. Oh, we don't want to bother God. We don't want to ask too much. I was, we're talking today about this also. And I've taught you this before. There's no example I can find where Jesus ever criticized the disciples for asking too much. There's not an example where he said, look, you're, you're believing. This is too, you're pushing the envelope. I mean, you're getting extreme here. I mean, Peter, the idea of you walk, I'm son of God. I, I can walk on water. But where, where do you get that idea from? Peter, stay in your place, which is that boat. That's not what happened at all. The only time Jesus ever got upset at them was for believing too little. Why is he any different today? Hebrews 13 says, Jesus the same, yesterday, today, and forever. So the runner comes and says, don't bother the master anymore. It's too late. Which means it's now beyond his ability. I want that to sink in. Because this is how we think. It's too hard for him. It's too late. Jesus turns. This is so critical. He doesn't answer them. He doesn't say, no, it's not. He turns to Jairus. And I, I've taught you this before. It doesn't say that in there, but I can picture him. I can picture Jesus turning to Jairus and grabbing him by the lapels. Oh, I don't think he had lapels. The robe. And saying, fear not. Only believe. In other words, I don't care whether they say it's too late. You don't know who I, you remember who I am? 
There's nothing too late with me. As long as you fear not and only believe. This is helping somebody here tonight. There's no such thing as too anything with God. Too hard, too long. There was a man that had had a condition for 38 years. Well, you know, it's been a long time. There's no such thing as too long, too hard, too late with God. When you can create things out of nothing with your words. I want this to sink into you. Faith isn't memorizing a bunch of scriptures. Faith is setting your eyes on who God is. We teach out of Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes in what he said, shall be called in the path. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them, and you shall have them. The foundation of basic principles of faith. But we leave out verse 22. That Jesus said before all that, the basis of it. Have faith in God. So the best way you can develop your faith is develop your relationship with Him. This is all based on the prayer. Paul says that we might have a spirit of revelation and understanding in the knowledge of Him, what He's like. This is why in my spirit it was so strong tonight to just keep saying over, God is good. God is good. He wants to help you. He wants to deliver you. He wants to heal you. He wants to answer your prayer. He wants to. He's good. He's so much beyond good that you can imagine. Where there's difficulty, it's on our part. We need to grow in our understanding of God. And that's what this is for. And so, of course, Jesus goes to Jairus' house. Interesting thing is he had everybody stay back, including three-quarters of his disciples. And he chose three of them to come with him. He needed, at that level, at that level of miracle, he needed to get rid of any distractions. He needed to get rid of any unbelief. And he needed Jairus and his wife to believe and not, not fear and he needed only the disciples with him that he knew could be in agreement with him. And the rest of them, he left behind. He had to throw out the mourners. He had to get rid of them all. See, if you want some miracles, you've got to get rid of some conventions, and you may offend some people if you really want the miracle. Now, not everything goes to that level, but there are some things that go to that level. There was a time when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes down. He had those same three disciples with him. He comes down. And the other nine are down. There's a commotion going on. And he says, what's going on here? And there's a man comes running over. His son. He said, my son is an epileptic. He keeps throwing himself in the fire. And it was demons. He said, I took him to your disciples and they couldn't cast him out. Well, there's an interesting thing there. Jesus didn't say, well, I guess since they couldn't cast him out, it must not have been my father's will. So you can't decide what God's will is by the results. Jesus gave the only right answer. Bring him to me. He casts the demon out and then the disciples come together and say, now that everybody's going away, we have a question for you. How come we couldn't do it? He said, this time comes out only by prayer and fasting. This requires a different level of commitment. So it tells me that there's some situations that require something a little more. Even Jesus needed something a little more. But the point here is that the God, the God that we're talking about is a God that can raise the dead. Now go back to Hebrews. Oh, wow. Go back. No, not Hebrews. Ephesians. We're just in the introduction. <laughs> this is so important. This is something that's been stirring in me lately. Verse 19. That we might have a revelation about God, about what is the exceeding greatness of His power. That's what we've been talking about tonight. Look at it towards us. His power towards us. His power that's been displayed on our behalf. 
His power that's been, we'll see later, given to us. His power that's toward us. Not just displayed in the heavens. His power that's toward us, that's available to us. According to the working of His mighty power, this is the comparison. This is, gives us some idea of what his, this power is like that's been displayed towards us. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So what he's saying here is that I'm, I'm praying that God would open the eyes of your understanding, that you would understand this about him. You would understand that what he's given is the exceeding greatness of his power, which is what we've been talking about tonight. And according to the measure, and this is the measure of the power he's displayed towards us, which he used when he raised Christ Jesus from the, what? Dead. This is resurrection power. Now let's stop for the moment we have left. And think about what Christ did. He died on the cross. And the Bible tells us he was taken into Hades. Because it says, you know, I will not see my, his body corruption in Hades. So he's taken into the place of the unseen is what that literally means. The place of hell. The place of the dead. And when the price was paid... In that place of death, a man was made alive. That's like saying someone in the morgue just got up and walked out, except more so. In the place of death. Oh, let's go over to Revelation. Oh, Lord, time. Let's go over to Revelation. There's something in here God wants us to get. Because the church is missing the power that's been given to it. Revelation 1. This is Jesus appearing on the Isle of Patmos to John while he's in the Spirit. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Somebody asked me the other day, are there any scriptures about people going down in the Spirit? Here's one of them. And he laid his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Keys is the authority to control and to open. I have the authority over death. I have the authority over hell. He was dead in that place, and God made him alive in the place of death. And then Ephesians tells, not only did he make alive, this is the power towards us, is according to the measure of the same power he displayed towards Christ. He raised him from the dead, verse 20 in Hebrews 1.20, Ephesians, and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Far above it. Now this denotes several things. He's raised him from the dead, and he's elevated him, to the Father's right hand. We've learned before that in a king's palace, the absolute authority was the one that sat on the throne. But at his right hand was his chief counselor. At his right hand was what we call a prime minister. At his right hand was the one that exercised his authority to carry out his will. So Jesus was not just raised from the dead, but he was placed in a position of authority next to the creator himself. Far above all principality and powers and rulers. Those are spiritual, demonic forces, different levels of authority. Far above them. And every name that's named, that includes the names of diseases. Not only in this age, but in that which is to come. Not only here, notice, here too. This is not just talking about the age that is to come. Not only now, but also in the age to come. Which means it's also true now. So I don't care what it looks like in the world. Jesus still has authority. And what we're going to see next week 
is that authority has been given to and is to be exercised through his body. And guess what his body is? That's us. Instead, his body is timid, shy, hiding behind the walls of churches. I'm speaking to all of us. When we've been given the dynamite of God, the dunamis, the power of God that raised the dead, the power of God to cast out demons, the power of God to set people free, the power of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I did not come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom, but I came to you in the demonstration the demonstration, that's something you can see. And the power of the Holy Spirit. My question to God has been, because I really believe it's been God's question to me, where is that power? We may speak in tongues, but where's the power? The power to deliver, the power to set free, the power to heal, dramatic. Where's the power? Because that's when God gets the glory. The power of God. The demonstration and the power of God. Paul's prayers to the church at Ephesus, I pray that God would open the eyes of your understanding, that you would see, that you would grasp and see the hope of his calling, and that you would get a revelation of the knowledge of God, revelation of the knowledge of God. And part of what that revelation of the knowledge of God would be is the exceeding greatness, the exceeding greatness of the power that he displayed towards us when he raised Christ from the dead. We're going to go on and see next week that that power has been then given to his body to continue the work. Because, you know, we're, the ministry of Christ is still underway. The ministry of Christ is still... The book of Acts has not ended yet. We're still in that age, the church age. Amen? Well, we'll pick up here next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray tonight that the Spirit of God takes what we've heard and begins to work it down into our hearts as a seed that's sown, as, as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13. The seed is sown. We pray tonight that it's sown in good soil, hearts that are open, hearts that are not cluttered, hearts that are willing to receive and willing to adjust and change. We pray that this seed, because it's so important, God, we pray that you fill your church with your spirit. Fill your body with your spirit. Not just so we can walk around. But we can do what you said. That we would do the works that you do. Would we do also in greater works. We thank you for that in Jesus name. Amen.